Would you please take your Bibles and turn in them to Exodus chapter 21? Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. These are the verses that we skipped over last week in our attempt to sort of give an introduction to some of the different aspects of this law here in these chapters that we get. Uh, So we need to come back to these verses. As we go through the law, we're not going to have opportunity to talk about every single law that's in here, although every one of them is worthy of our contemplation and meditation. Uh, But these are important verses for us to consider, these verses about the regulation of slavery in ancient Israel. I remember still in my seminary ethics class, which was a number of years ago, that each of us was assigned to pick a topic, some ethical dilemma, and write a paper on it for the the main project in that class. And I had a friend who was from Knoxville, Tennessee, who chose to write on slavery and the issue of reparations in the South. And I still remember how confused I was that he would even think of a topic like that. Having grown up primarily in the West, slavery and the Civil War were just so far from my ordinary thoughts and life. We, we didn't study it extensively in my high school classes, uh, and it just didn't strike me as something that was still going on, that people were still thinking about. Uh, but if you're from Knoxville, Tennessee, or later, as I learned, if you're from South Carolina, those are live topics. That is still uh, issues that uh, divide people, that people argue over. And even now, we have to to recognize that as the topic of racial relations has come to the front of our news cycles once again throughout the country, these are sensitive verses. Why does the Bible talk about slavery and regulating it and giving laws for masters as to how they are to treat their slaves rather than simply outlawing the practice altogether? Does that mean that the Bible approves of slavery? And if so, what are we supposed to make of that? What can we say about a document like that that has these laws? Well, that's why we need to talk about these verses. I think if we give some time to studying and reading these verses carefully, we'll see a different picture altogether. In fact, I'm going to read them in a moment, but let me suggest that one possible hermeneutic, one way that we can read and understand these verses, would come out of Matthew chapter 19. That's a place where Jesus and the Pharisees are having a discussion about marriage and divorce. And the Pharisees bring up some of the laws from the Old Testament that were given to Moses that regulate the practice of divorce. And Jesus says, but have you not read that from the beginning it was not so? That that in the beginning God created them male and female. And he goes back behind the law all the way to creation to say this was God's original intent. Now, why then would God give laws that regulate divorce? if they're not God's original intent, if they're not God's highest purpose for marriage? Do do the laws themselves mean that God somehow approves of divorce? After all, he he told you how to do it. He said the man must give his wife the certificate, etc. Does that mean God loves and approves of divorce? Well, absolutely not. In fact, we read elsewhere in the Old Testament where it says explicitly, God hates divorce. And yet because he knew about the effects of sin, he knew the destruction and the harm that sin could bring to marriages and to the human lives that are involved in them. This was sort of an act of his grace, saying that because he knew that, he would therefore regulate 
how divorce would be done to limit the destructiveness of sin itself. That was not God's final purpose for marriage. That did not express his highest intent for what marriage should be. But as a sort of accommodation to the sinfulness in the human heart, he allowed it and he regulated it for a time. I think that helps us as we think about why does the Old Testament regulate slavery rather than outlawing it altogether? Does that mean God approves of slavery? I don't think it does. I think we can say from Matthew 19, God can use laws in the Old Testament to regulate something that he hates. He can use laws to try to limit the destructive power of these things that he hates. Even though he's not outlawing them altogether, he hasn't gotten to that step yet. But I think the, the example of marriage shows us something, and he's doing something similar with slavery here in chapter 21. Now, I want to say more about this, and we'll get to it in time, but first we need to read this portion of God's word together. So let me ask, would you join in standing, me, standing with me as we read together Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord from Exodus 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of his doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing, without payment of money. Let's pray one more time. Father, these verses come to us as your word for us to learn from, to be edified, edified and instructed by to point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, although they are difficult, we pray, Lord, would you open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in this portion of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as we begin to get into these verses, and, and no doubt even just reading through them raises some questions in your mind of how we're to understand these verses and what we're to make of them but let's, let's zoom back a little bit and, and just consider the context. And I mean both the uh, scriptural context of where we're at in the book of Exodus as well as something about the historical context as well. One thing that's really interesting, we saw in chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments that that chapter began with a mention of slavery. And the mention there was, you are to remember that the Lord has redeemed you out of slavery. And therefore he gave them his commandments. Chapter 21, beginning this new section of law, also begins with a mention of slavery. But here the mention is, this is how you are to conduct yourself towards your slaves. And then it goes on to regulate that. Here's what's interesting. 
It says, here is how God treated you when you were slaves. And then it says, now here is how you are to treat those who are your slaves. Now we put those two together and we see there's an approach to Christian ethics there that hasn't changed even until today. To say, let's first think about how God has treated you. Now based on that, let's think about how you are to treat others. That's still the basic way we approach Christian ethics today. How are we to treat others? One of the most interesting things we say as Christians is the way we treat others is not dependent on the way they treat us. The way we treat others is dependent on how God has treated us. And because he has been gracious to us, we are to be gracious and merciful to others. Because God has been kind to us, we are to be kind to others. In fact, if you look in chapter 22, verse 21, this is an interesting verse that we'll have time to come back to. Chapter 22, 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their their cry and my wrath will burn. He says the same thing. He says, the reason you are to be kind now to the sojourners who come in Israel is because you know what it was like to be sojourners. And therefore, you were abused when you were sojourners. Therefore, now you have the opportunity to be kind to sojourners. You have the, the opportunity now to do unto others as God has done unto you. And, and this reminds us, what was their life like in, in Egypt? It wasn't so long ago for them. They, this was just a matter of, of less than a year since they had come out of Israel, or Egypt rather, when they had been slaves. And when they were slaves in Egypt, Slavery was harsh. It was abusive. It was brutal. Their lives were considered cheap, worthless, even. You remember they were forced to make bricks without straw. You remember Pharaoh's plan to kill all the baby boys. You remember Pharaoh's accusations against them that their request to worship the Lord was simply a sign of their laziness, and therefore he instituted harsher treatment on them. That's how slaves were treated in the ancient world. By and large, there was, they were considered as property to be disposed of. There was no concern for the dignity of the person who was a slave. There was no concern for their human rights or their worth. And, and so that is exactly what Israel has just come out of. And now in light of that, God is saying, it shall be far different among you. There's going to be regulations on slavery. But why is there slavery at all? Well, again, we need to think about the context, the, the situation in which they lived, consider their economy. Israel lived for hundreds of years in an agrarian economy. If you were poor and destitute in Israel, what options did you have? There was no government care that could send you your social security checks every month to care for you. You didn't go out and get a job at, at the local fast food restaurant for, for minimum wage to get at least something to survive on. There were no banks. You couldn't walk in and, and apply for a credit card or for a loan to get you through a tight time. What could you do if you were poor and destitute in Israel? The reality was being poor in those days was very dangerous. If you were female, it was even more dangerous. It was a vulnerable and precarious position to be in. Well, here's what you could do. You could go and and you could sell yourself into slavery. 
And that was a time, that was a way that you could provide for yourself and for your family in a time of absolute need. Now that sounds horrible and dramatic, but but one thing we'll see is that with these regulations, it's not as horrible and it's not as dramatic as we think at first. But this was a decision that was made by someone who was destitute, possibly somebody who was deeply in debt, and they had no way possible to pay back the debt that they owed, and they were in danger of worse consequences. They had no way of providing for themselves or their family. What could they do? See, it was, it was, not, um, it was, it, it was not what we often think of as slavery. Rather, it was an economic decision that a person could voluntarily enter into. Uh, look at verse 2. One of the first things we see in the passage is that there is no such thing as absolute slavery in Israel. Verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So all slavery is, is regulated from the, from the first by this law, that it's for six years. It has a definite term. And in the seventh year, the slave goes free for nothing. So here you are, this destitute Israelite, making the decision of what to do. If you sell yourself into slavery, it's an economic decision for six years, knowing that in that seventh year, you will be free. And I think the logic there is that, that we assume six years should be enough time to store up some assets, kind of build up a little bank account to get you back on your feet, such that in that seventh year you can be free and you can go back to becoming a productive and industrious member of society. Or if you had a debt, that should be enough time to earn the money to pay back the debt so that you are back on your feet. Or even more important, look down at verse 16. And we didn't read this verse, we read it last week. Look at chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Anyone caught stealing, selling, buying, or being in possession of a stolen person was meant to be put to death. Now, if we think about slavery, isn't this what we think about first? Because this is the form of slavery that we're most familiar with if we think about the American South, the antebellum South, um, or less commonly talked about, but just as true here in the West, with Native Americans and Mexicans who were sold and, and sold into slavery. All that slavery that we think of that was so horrible and so hideous was all based on stealing people, forcing them into captivity, forcing them into slavery, selling them on the auction block for a profit, treating people like possessions. And we see in this verse that's, that's absolutely forbidden. I think at least many, if not all, but many of our objections when we think about slavery in the Bible will, will disappear when we recognize this verse, that you were never sold into slavery. That's not how it worked in ancient Israel. Rather, it was a decision made by the person themselves to enter into slavery for a fixed period of time in order to either provide for themselves or their family or to get out of a debt. And this is important. Remember, in, in those days, travel was not like it is now. It was dangerous. You were sojourning in a foreign land. You had no protections. You were powerless. And here God is saying that among you, O Israel, you will protect these people. These people who are in the most vulnerable position with no governmental protection, with no passports, you are to be kind to them. You may not steal them and sell them into slavery. After all, you know what that is like. You know what that is like. This is important because God knows how easy it is 
for those who have been abused to become the abuser. Right? For those who have gone through abuse on the receiving end, when they get their freedom, when they become more powerful, isn't it so common that they actually end up becoming the abuser? And God says, that shall not be so among you. If you abuse your newfound power and privilege and begin to abuse and enslave others who are poor and powerless, remember what he said in chapter 22? He said, I will hear their cry. and My wrath will burn. God is setting a firm standard here that slavery is not like it would become here in America. And so we have to recognize first what slavery was not in Israel. It was not a form of abuse or torture. It was not race-based. Right? We're talking about one Israelite indenturing himself to another Israelite. It's not race-based. It was a voluntarily, voluntary economic mechanism whereby the poor and destitute and powerless could attempt to get back on their feet. And that, I believe, when we recognize that, that's why it's regulated, not outlawed. It's regulated, not outlawed. Now, let's look at a few more of the laws that are given here. We see first in verse 2 that slavery was for a six-year term, and after that the slave was to be set free for nothing. They did not need to buy their freedom. It was simply automatic. Look at the next four verses here, verses 3 through 6. These verses concern the marital state of these slaves. And we heard in the verses, if you come into slavery single, you go out single. If you come in married, you go out married. Easy enough. That makes sense. However, it's a little trickier when we read the law that says if you indenture yourself as a slave and you're single, but then during that six years your master provides you with a wife and you get married and you start a family together, when your term is up in that seventh year, it says, come in single go out single, and your wife and children will have to stay behind. Now, what's that all about? Again, commentators draw our attention to the fact that, that this man was poor and destitute enough that he had to sell himself into slavery. He had nothing. In order to provide for himself, he had to go into slavery in order to survive, which means most likely these verses are meant to be a protection for that woman and those children. After all, if this, if this man was so destitute, then perhaps when he gets out, how is he going to provide now not only for himself but for a family? That could be a dangerous position. And remember, to be poor and female in ancient Israel was a vulnerable and precarious position. And so perhaps these laws are actually meant to provide this woman uh, with some protection. If before he was a poor single guy... Now he's going to be a poor married guy, and that's even worse. But he has two options for keeping the family together. Right? This, that's why this sounds so terrible, is you're breaking up a family. Well, he has two options. And interestingly, both of them provide some level of financial stability for the family. First, if he wants, the verses say he's welcome to stay. If he loves his master and his wife and his children and he doesn't want to go out alone, he can say to his master that he, he loves his master, his wife and his children, and he won't go out free. And they go through this little ritual. They bring him to God and take him to the doorpost of the house and drive an awl through his ear and he becomes a servant forever, in which case the family stays together uh, in the master's household. Or the second option is, we know from later laws that there were options whereby a free person could buy the slave's freedom. He could redeem them. He could pay the purchase price to redeem a slave. 
And so if this guy has truly gotten himself back on his feet during these six years, if he's now financially stable and able to provide for himself and for a family, he can buy their freedom. And you see how both of those ways provide stability and financial protection for the woman and children. Either they remain in the master's household and they're provided for, or their husband is now financially stable and they're provided for. But what they don't allow is somebody who's not financially stable to go out and lead the family. I think when we understand these laws, it, it becomes a protection. It becomes a protection for the women and the children. Now, the following verses in 7 through 11, they're actually similar, I believe. These verses here, now the topic is not a man selling himself into slavery. It's a man selling his daughter into slavery. This, again, this sounds even worse. Um, but we have to remember, again, we're talking about an absolutely destitute family. They can't afford a, a proper marriage or a proper wedding for their daughter and so perhaps the best they can do is to sell her off to a wealthy person for her to become essentially what would be like a maybe a secondary wife if you remember the the case of Bilhah and Zilpah in the story of Isaac and Jacob that were essentially slaves or servants that were given to Jacob as sort of secondary wives in order that they would be then provided for and protected by someone who had financial security and stability in the household. Uh, now, these laws regulate several different scenarios of how this might go down. First, if the marriage does not work out, verse 8 says, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. So again, in this scenario, this law is meant to protect this poor woman who has been sold to be a slave or a wife for this wealthy master. And they protect her, saying if it doesn't work out, he's not allowed simply to, to sell her again, to sell her to a foreign people. He must allow her to be redeemed. Verse 9 gives another scenario. The man might not marry her himself, but he might designate her for his son. And it says if you do this, then she shall become like a daughter to you. But this is not a case of a, a wealthy father simply buying a, a new toy for his son, some kind, of, uh, some kind of despicable present that he gives to her. He says, no, if you do this and you buy this wife and give her to your son, she is your daughter and she is to be treated as such. And the, it goes on to say, if, if this son were to take other wives, and again, that is not God's ideal, but we know it happened in the Old Testament. It says he must not diminish that which is due to his first wife, her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And it goes on to say, verse 11, if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So again, this whole section of law, as foreign as it sounds to our ears, we recognize these are laws that are meant to protect the poor and the powerless in society. These are meant to protect those who are most vulnerable from being abused. It's meant to give them some rights to speak out on behalf of the powerless. There's no laws in this section giving us the rights of masters. It's all laws on behalf of those who are in slavery. Now, as we think about this, do you see how the compassion of God shows through in these laws? Do you see how, how compassionate he is? Perhaps, you know, when we think about the law, and perhaps we don't, read it carefully as much as we just have a category in our mind for it and we think about it, 
And, and you only think law. That equals moralism, legalism, a high standard of rigid obedience. That we think about standards of moral purity that God requires. But do you think, instead, of reading in the law and seeing how much God cares about the security and the well-being of the least of these? Do we see in the law how much God cares for the poor and the powerless among society? And perhaps we can see in that how much God cares for you. Perhaps you've always assumed that, that our concerns in life, whatever they may be, are simply below God's standard of what he has time to think about. Perhaps you think, God is concerned about theology. He's not concerned about my little problems. Maybe it's a, just low-level but persistent economic problems. You worry that your future is always unstable and in doubt. Economic issues, financial problems, health issues. And perhaps it's these kind of health issues that are not uh, dramatic, and so they're not well known to others. They're things that you struggle with and you alone. But, but look at these laws again. God cares about the poor among his people. God cares about those that are at the end of their rope. God cares about those who feel like they have nowhere else to turn. It shows us a God who's not afraid to get down into the muck and the mire with his people. And you know what I love? Picture this scene. Do you remember where these laws are coming from? God is on the mountain, clothed in this cloud and thunder and lightning in the picture of majesty and holiness and doom, and the people are afraid to get close because it's so overwhelming and majestic. And yet, what is he speaking about? He's taking care of the least of these. He's speaking from the mountaintop of holiness, and he's giving love to the poor and the powerless towards those who can't care for themselves, to the marginalized, towards those our society is tempted to overlook or to take advantage of or to abuse. That's who God is caring for from the mountain. It reminds me of, of the Gospels when, when Jesus, it seemed as though his disciples always thought he should be somewhere else doing something else, had better things to do, better people to be with. Right? They, they were on the side of those who wanted to make him king, who wanted to help him to maximize his platform in order to reach the most and the powerful and the best among society. And do you remember that Jesus kept escaping all of that? Do you remember what Jesus always wanted to be doing instead? He didn't want to be made king. He didn't want to be with the powerful. It seemed he had two things he always preferred doing. Either he wanted to escape by himself in order that he could pray or he wanted to be spending time with the least of these. Talking to a multiple times divorced woman at the well who no one else would associate with. Having dinner at the thief's house. Allowing the prostitute to pour her perfume onto his feet. Receiving their offerings. That's what Jesus was doing. He was spending time with the, the poor and the powerless. He was stopping to heal those who were unclean that society would not even look at or touch or get near to and Jesus would put his hands on them. Psalm 9 reminds us the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. The Lord cares about the widow and the fatherless that our God is a God of compassion and that's not just 
theoretical compassion either. It's, it's reality. That he loves those who are powerless and he cares for them. When we see in these laws the compassion of God, when we read them carefully, but we see beyond that as well. We can actually see in these laws something that is pointing us to Christ. Believe it or not, look again at verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that the slave will serve for, se- for six years, and in the seventh year they'll go out for free. Now this is a clear application of the fourth commandment. Remember the fourth commandment itself says that even slaves do not do labor on the seventh day. On the Sabbath, all Israel was to rest together with their male servants and their female servants. Everyone was to rest. Now this verse expands the Sabbath command even greater. Not only do they rest every seventh day, but in the seventh year, they get the ultimate rest. Their slavery is ended. They go free for nothing, for free. They go free. This is sort of a a super Sabbath, that it's not just rest every seventh day, but it's ultimate rest for these slaves every seventh year. In fact, it doesn't talk about it in Exodus, but if we go to the same law in Deuteronomy chapter 15, It says you set your slaves free in the seventh year and when you send them out, you don't send them out empty-handed. You are to provide for them and it says you are to provide liberally for them out of your flocks, out of your wineries, out of your treasure houses. You are to give them something. Let them go with, with money that they can be on that secure footing, that they can get themselves back on their feet. And, and we know that, that it applied not only to slaves, but every seventh year, the fields were allowed to rest, right? Nobody planted crops on the seventh year. And God promised them, are you worried? Don't worry, in the sixth year, your fields will be extra abundant. And you won't go hungry. You'll have plenty to get through a year of rest. You see, each of these Sabbaths, both the weekly Sabbath and now these Sabbath years, were means of God providing rest for his people. It was a physical rest, no doubt, but there was also a sign that spiritual rest was also provided by God. Do you remember when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, his first public teaching? He goes and he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, and he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he read it, and he closed the scroll, and he sat down, and he said, Today... This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's like the ancient Jewish equivalent of the mic drop to say, this is it. This is me. He says all of those Sabbath years, all of those Jubilee years in which the captives were set free and the people and the land enjoyed rest and everyone celebrated freedom. He said those years that you've been celebrating for centuries Those are good years, but ultimately those are but shadows that are pointing to the true rest and the true freedom and the true liberty that only comes in the work of Christ on our behalf. He says, I am the one who brings redemption for the slaves. I am the one who sets at liberty those who are in captive. 
I am the one who gives rest to the weary. Jesus says, I am your seventh year. Can you imagine how slaves would have felt as they anticipated the coming of that seventh year? That was a voluntary decision to go into slavery, but that had to be the hardest decision they ever made. And I imagine every day for six years, they're counting down how many days are left. How long until redemption is granted? How long until they have freedom again? And Jesus says, I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Your freedom is in me. And he says, you're free. You're free to stop working. Your slavery is ended. Your freedom is here. Or look even, even again, look at verses 5 and 6. Here's this ritual by which this slave who loved his master could decide that he would rather stay completely voluntarily. He would rather not go out and, and be free apart from his family, but he could choose to say, I love my master. I will stay. And they would take him to the doorpost before God and pierce his ear. There's a psalm, Psalm 40, that seems to make mention of this. Psalm 40, verses uh, 6 and following, it says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. In verse 8, I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. When it says you have given me an open ear, what it says there literally is, you have pierced my ear. He says, I delight. O God, to do your will. See, what the psalmist is saying is not picturing these as the words of a slave, but the words of the worshiper. The words of the psalmist himself who comes to God and says, Lord, you have pierced my ear. I make this declaration. I delight to do your will. I would not go out from this place, but I will stay and I will serve freely, voluntarily, willingly. It's my joy and my delight to stay and serve. As the later psalm says, Better, O Lord, is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. This is the worshiper who so knows the love of God, the grace and the mercy of God, that he says, Lord, don't send me away. Pierce my ear that I might stay and serve willingly all the days of my life. You see, set aside the moral dilemmas for a moment. These are words that are meant to be true of us. We are to stay not begrudgingly, not under compulsion, but out of a sincere love for the Lord, our Master. We can go one, one step further because the book of Hebrews, that great extended sermon, quotes these words as well out of Psalm 40, but applies them not to a slave and not to the worshiper before God, such as you and I, but it applies them instead to Jesus. After all, think again of this ritual. This is the ritual of one who loves his master so deeply that he's willing to give up his freedom in order to serve. He's willing to take upon himself totally voluntarily this lowest station, that of a slave. And in doing so, he is pierced. Isn't that like Jesus? The one who so loved his father that freely and willingly he would give up his freedom, take the form of a servant. These are the words of Philippians chapter 2, that he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
at the form of a servant being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and he would become the servant of all. That our Lord came not to be served, but to serve. And in doing so, he was pierced. Not in his ear, but in his side. And yet we look on that not as a dilemma, but as good news. As gospel for us. Because we were the ones who were enslaved. We were enslaved to, to sin, to impurity, to unrighteousness. And the only way that we could be redeemed from our slavery is if Jesus would come down and become a slave, taking our place, in order that we might take his position and go free. He took the position of the slave willingly, out of love, in order that we might know what it is to be redeemed, might know what it is to go free. You see how the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God is woven into these laws, even these laws that seem difficult and, and out of date and so hard to understand for us at first we read them and we see that in reality they reflect the love and compassion of God for people who are just exactly like us. And they point us forward so that our hope is not merely in a, a, some seventh year, but our hope is in Christ, who is our seventh year, who is our redemption, who is our freedom gained for us that we might live in the presence of the Father. Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that all of these laws that told of freedom, that told of jubilee years, that told of redemption, that they were all brought to perfect and complete fulfillment in Christ, that in him everything is yes and amen, and that we find in Christ everything that we could desire, all of our redemptions, freedoms, salvation, and reconciliation with God. Lord, we pray that you would make him more dear to us, that we would love him more deeply, more today than we have yesterday, more this week than we have last week, that we would joyfully and willingly say, I love you, O God. My heart delights to do your will. Amen. In Jesus. Amen.